0: all right good morning thank you for joining bible class today uh before we get into the material we always want to begin by uh sharing prayer requests and saying a prayer together yes they didn't give me a uh one of these but i can ask tracy for one you've done a good job chris will you go get a lapel thank you chris they're gonna go get one david can you tell them they'll get one (laughs) (laughs) all right um Want to make sure everybody can hear, I have a bad habit, I mean this sincerely, I have a bad habit of mumbling. And so it will not hurt my feelings if you just raise your hand or or do this, I'll know to try better. Um, Let's begin with uh, prayer requests this morning. Yes, Wanda, then Mel.
1: The
0: gentleman, my next door neighbor that I had said last week that, well it turned out that he had a blocked artery and they had to do a stent. And so, of course, I did not know where he was or anything until he finally
1: came home on Monday. All right. Thank you. No. My stepdaughter, Susan, her husband, uh, Jeff Estelle, uh, has liver cancer, and they're supposed to be able to uh, do surgery laparoscopically and remove it. So, prayers that all that works out well. Thank you.
0: Any others? Let's bow together. God in heaven, we're thankful for today to be gathered together on the first day of the week to celebrate our risen Lord and also now to study your word. And we're thankful that you revealed yourself to us through Jesus and through the word. Please guide our study today, Father. We lift up to you with thanksgiving for clarity and news about Wanda's neighbor uh, and also prayers that he was able to get the treatment he needs. We ask you to continue to bless him and help Wanda as she uh, lives out your teaching to, to be a good neighbor. We're thankful for her. We pray for uh, Jeff Estelle, uh, Melda's stepdaughter's husband. Thankful for a, good res- uh, for a clear result and the opportunity to have medical care. but praying that you'll guide him and remove that cancer and bless his uh, caregivers. Again, we're thankful for Jesus most of all. We pray in His name, Amen. Thank you. All right. Um, if you would take a take a look at the handout, that'll. Um, you don't have to. I, I put a lot more text on there than uh, than we'll actually use. You may have looked at that thing and said, well, "Goodness, is Dave about to give us homework? What's going on here?" Um, I just I had a lot to put down to guide us, and I wanted you to have a reference point really uh, for the document. So um, let's start with the class of the whole. As a whole, I think it was labeled. Uh, I'm pretty sure Bible Basics. I call it Fundamentals of the Faith. Um, either either term is fine. The idea is um, that you would we would spend some time on some basics or some fundamentals, especially as doing so will help us talk to our neighbors who might be. Um, who might be religiously inclined, meaning they've had some experience with the Bible, with church, or maybe a lot of experience, um, or maybe perhaps none, and they just have questions. They just know what they've seen on TV. And the idea would be to uh, work together uh, to talk about some of those concepts and how we might then discuss them with with our neighbor. And so that first section there, I say, I give you some bullet points over a class description, and I just wanted to clarify a couple things we'll be doing. Um, I have a handout. Heather, would you mind giving the glad rose? Heather's passing out a handout. If you didn't get one, uh, uh, Tracy just brought in some extras. And it looks like Chris, you're efforting a microphone for me. I'm still finding one, yeah. All right. Um, So the first thing I would offer, again, we're talking about the whole next nine weeks. Today is the first of nine weeks. I wanted to just make clear a couple things about what we'll be doing. The first bullet I put is we're going to review spiritual principles rather than scriptural principles rather than proof texts. Of course, we're going to ground everything we do and talk about here in the Bible. But I wanted to be clear that you knew hey, we're not getting um, into. All right, just a sec. They can both be on the problem. That'll help me, too. I was getting a neck cramp from leaning into that thing. All right. Very good. Thank you. Um, I wanted to make sure you knew we're not going to leave this class with me giving you that one scripture. Then you're, you're going to be able to walk up to your uncle who you've been, you've been talking about the, the meaning of the Lord's Supper with for 20 years. I'm not going to give you that verse that you can go up and slap down like a Uno reverse card. Okay? And win that argument. That's that's not what uh, what we're going to be doing. We're going to track uh, principles in the scripture to hope, hopefully uh, deepen and broaden um, our understanding of, of some crucial concepts. Um, and then that's the third bullet. I say I'm not, I, we're not equipping you for debate. Um, in my mind, I have the literal debate with our, our Mormon friends from, from years ago or perhaps other conversations you may have been engaged on. I can even think of a couple on an airplane back when people on airplanes still talked to each other. Um, where, which I'm fine with that change, by the way. Just leave me alone. Let me sit in my seat. Um, but anyway, the point is I'm not, we're not equipping each other for, for a debate. Um, it's, it's more about the, the lives we live next door, maybe in some cases quite literally those, those coworkers, those family, those friends, those, those people on your kid's ball team that, that want to talk to you about these things. It's about conversations. And so um, the idea is that if your if you're understanding of these fundamentals is deeper, then you're more comfortable talking about them with someone else. Um, it is totally fine to say, let me, ask, let me ask my preacher about that. You know, That's famously how the Mormon debate happened, by the way. Bill Thompson said, I, my preacher should talk to you. Um, and then, of course, the preacher joked about how he said, well, then let's get my brother to debate you. But anyway, <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't want to get off track. The point being, um, it is totally normal to ask for help or say, let me, talk, let me research that, let me read more. I, I'm unfamiliar with that. But the hope would be that today, um, or over the next nine weeks, we talk about these topics in a way that would help you as you talk with your neighbor. Now, I want to be super transparent about where most of my material is coming from. Uh, it's coming from this book, uh, The Church of Christ, by uh, Everett Ferguson, a um, long scholar in our fellowship. Um, I will say it's a really good book if you're having trouble falling asleep. Um, it'll help you a lot with that. Thank you. That was a joke. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty dense. It's not exactly a pleasure to read, but um, it is really rich, and I've learned a lot from it um, over the past 20 years. Then the next thing I wanted to just briefly talk about is part of what the reason that Ryan um, asked me to teach this class is my own lived experience over the last two decades. Uh, for, for 18 of the last 20 years, um, I've worked in a, in a Catholic high school, uh, I'm, a edu- I'm an educator um, by trade. I taught English, and now I'm an assistant principal. And again, for 18 of the last 20 years, I've done that in a Catholic high school setting, and it's it's really um, helped me in being able to talk to people about uh, topics of faith, as you as you might imagine. And so, the one, uh, a couple of the, the way I would summarize my experience to help um, you, what what I've learned essentially is that it's been really helpful to make sure I always assign good motives to people for their beliefs, right? The other way would be to say it is not helpful when I've assigned bad motives for their beliefs. So for instance, I've learned to basically, because it's it's true that the folks I work with um, who've been Catholic, the, their term is uh, cradle Catholics, right? I've learned that um, these folks are knowledgeable. Um, they know the Bible, like uh, some of them. Um, <laughs> They know the Bible. And, and the other thing is, is they're sincere. They're not, they, they don't hold these beliefs just because their parents taught them or because they hate Protestants or um, they love pretty church buildings. I mean, those are unfair things to say about them. And so that's that third bullet right there where I say it almost always leads to pain and alienation when we assign bad motives to people and their beliefs. You know, something like, oh, they don't care about scripture. They, they don't believe in the authority of Scripture. They don't want to submit to God's authority. They haven't studied the Bible enough. I just think even if those things are true, it doesn't help us to begin with that point. Um, so, and, and here's how I know that. Somewhere today, probably, there's folks talking about us that way. Right? Look at those. There's a, there's a Some other time, we'll, we'll tell the Church of Christ jokes that you've heard, right, um, about us. And so it's, 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 it creates empathy to stop and remember, folks are saying that about us, and, and they're often untrue, right? you know They'll accuse us of being um, literalists in a, in a horrible way, things like that. Um, and so if those things are not fair to say about us, then it's really helpful to our discussions with our neighbors as a way to love them to not then assign bad mothers to them. Now, that said, I wanna make one super clear point, okay? People can still not know and not act on the truth. Like Another way to say that is they can still be wrong. Um, I learned early on um, when I began um, coming to Churches of Christ in my own conversion process and moments, this is really simple. Sincerity does not substitute for truth. OK? Sincerity does not substitute for truth. Now, I don't want to begin there. You know, I'm not sitting down with my, my Catholic colleague and saying, you may be really sincere, but you're going, that sincerity is not gonna serve you really well in hell, sir, okay?
1: <laughs>
0: we don't start there, all right? Um, and, and I'm not suggesting anyone would, but I sure just got your attention right now. Um, so the other thing, the other reason that, that that experience over the last 18 years has really helped me is that it's prompted me to grow in the, my own understanding and really the clarity regarding doctrine, dogma, which is teaching from authority, the teachings of the Lord's church, it's, it really has. I've had to be clearer in what I believe. Um, now, I want to pause and say, that's. I'm not suggesting that uh, that's the best way to grow in your faith, but that's even how the Bible teaches to grow in your faith. Everybody doesn't need to go out and get a job or, or Begin, you know, volunteering with a group that believes the opposite of us or doesn't hold our beliefs um, or doesn't root their beliefs in Scripture. That, that's not the best way. It's just that those encounters have helped me. Um, I feel like God has redeemed those encounters in a way for me. And so I came up with this analogy. Here, here's the analogy for that and, and why, again, I'm really just giving you my own credibility for this topic. Here's the analogy for this. Um, we have Australians come to the United States with, with uh, my family, with Heather's family and we talk about sports. And so, sometimes I have to explain American football to Australians, yeah. right? And when I do that, I start with something they sort of know, and that's rugby. There's a ball, you tackle each other, right? People getting, get hurt really badly. And so, um, I realize when, when I do that explanation, I realize two things. One, I don't really know a lot about rugby, right? That, that conversation definitely crystallizes that. Mm-hmm. But I also sometimes don't know all the rules and and inner workings of American football. So that conversation makes me aware of my own lack of understanding or or my own really the word I would use super technical word here, fuzziness, okay. Some things are just not clear. Um, And as I do that, it makes me realize where my gaps are. And then I go back and I study them, I ask questions, I find out and we have these really good conversations. Um, And then I want to read the last two points word for word. I want to make clear as you think about it, talk to your neighbors, especially your neighbors that, that have religious experiences in the past, <coughs> I never have to apologize for the truth, and I, and I never do that. You know, I don't hem and haw and fake um, humility when I tell people, no, the, 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 the Lord didn't design His church to have instruments in the worship assembly. I'm going to have to hide for that. I'm going to have to apologize. But as I said earlier, I also don't have to pick fights, you know, um, I've been to literally hundreds of Catholic masses over the last 18 years. Um, I don't leave those services where I've been respectful and polite and say, "Man, I wish I'll take that cross down off the wall." You know, I, this is this is not how to be a good neighbor. Um, and then finally, this phrase has served me really well when engaging others who believe differently. My first step is to seek to understand rather than to persuade. All right. My first step, seek to understand, not to persuade. Um, the example I'll give is this. When I started at, at this kind of school, I thought, and I said out loud, you folks worship Mary. Okay. I mean, that's a, that's a common takeaway. If you, if you only see Catholicism in pop culture, you know, go buy candles in the store, or you've been in Mardell, whatever the case well, I've come to understand through talking to these folks and understanding that's actually an, an inaccurate way to describe their relationship to Mary. Now, I'll pause and say, I still think there's some misunderstandings there. But the point being, I understand their position and it equips me to, to deal with that, to have conversations, to share the truth. Now, I emphasize first step because we are also, if we have the opportunity, bound to share the truth. And so eventually the, whole, the point is to persuade, to, to change minds. But again, if you think about your own position, what would it take to change your mind about a crucial teaching of the Lord's Church, right? a crucial teaching of New Testament Christianity? It'd take, it'd take a great deal. In fact, for this class, I asked myself, what belief of mine has changed over the last 20 years? And, and I would venture, uh, maybe none, right? Uh, but my understanding is deepened and so forth. So my point is, eventually we do have to persuade, yes, but the first step is seek to understand rather than to persuade. I think that'll serve you well. All right, and then the last three bullet points on that very first page, um, I'm putting down what I hope the end of the time together looks like. Um, I hope that that you have enriched your understanding of some of the important teachings of Christianity. I hope that you've become more comfortable in talking about these concepts with your neighbor, and I hope that you've strengthened both both your confidence and your humility as you encounter different and, and even false teachings. All right feel free to turn the page. So um, we won't do that every class, but I did want to set the ground for where we're going to be um, the next nine weeks. So the first lesson um, today, it's in bold at the very top, uh, is the nature of the church. Um, So that's our phrase, really, that's what we're going to be talking about, the principle we're looking at, and the identity of the elect as a response to predestination. So Super clear here. I'm not going to sit up here and tell you why predestination is wrong. Instead, we're going to focus on the scriptural principles that help us understand um, the true teaching that, 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 of course, illustrates that predestination is a, is a false doctrine. Um, so I put it in one sentence. I'm telling you exactly what I hope to be accomplished when we're done today. And that is this. At the end of the lesson, you will be able to explain how God elects his chosen people. That's, that's what we want. You should be able if I did my job, when we're done here, you should be able to explain that, um, at least in your own head. Um, I wanted to start with a quote from, from Dr. Ferguson and I'll, I'll read it directly. "It is not said in Scripture that God has chosen Christians individually. He has chosen those in Christ. He has not chosen who will be in Christ. God elects a community, and the community he chooses now are those in Christ. A person may reject Christ and refuse the election. So if, if I get too dense, or really, I mean, I'm going to blame Dr. Ferguson. If he gets too dense today as, as we walk through this, you say, I'm not sure. David's gone off. He's gone off on a rabbit trail, okay? Um, he's gone off the beaten path. You go back to those two things, and, and hopefully that will clear up any understanding, misunderstandings. Alright, the way, um, the reason I wrote it out and it's four pages long, we, we probably won't get to all this, but um, I just, I, the way we phrased it is, I've listed out essential questions in sequence, like as we follow this topic, and then I've given the answers to that. So, um, for instance, the very first essential question is, what is the nature of the church? And then I have some thoughts on that, um, that you have there. I have some additional thoughts that I didn't put, put in that outline. Um, So, feel free to mark on it, do do whatever you would like with it, Um, line line your birdcage with it, whatever whatever you want to do. Feel free to raise your hand and ask questions. Typically, my class, um, and it will in the future, involves a lot more audience participation, but uh, this first one, um, I just have a couple questions to ask as we go along, but you're always welcome to raise your hand and ask a question. Alright, so the first question is, as we talk about the uh, nature of the church, is what is it? What is the nature of the church, and the beginning point for us as we think about this is in the scripture. The the descriptions of the church they relate it to um, the deity. Some some folks reasonably so aren't aren't comfortable with the the word Trinity because that is not a Bible word. But um, you might know it by those terms. So if you look on the in that in the uh, box there, the explanation descriptions of the church for the God, um, people of God, family of God. You might uh, you might have heard those terms or used those terms. I remember uh, the first preacher who taught the teen Bible class when I first started coming to church. His name was Alvis Nichols. Um, he said he had this great lesson for us about what we could put on our sign out front. Did we have to use Church of Christ? And and so we worked through, it and of course we were you not know, obligated to do, use that. We could put Family of God or, or whatever the case could be. So here are some descriptions of that. Um, Jesus Christ, related to the church, you might hear the church called the body of Christ, the vine, the sheep, um, Holy Spirit. Um, The church is called the community filled with the Holy Spirit, or the temple in which God dwells through the Holy Spirit. So, um, again, the fundamental piece that we start with is the nature of the church, always related to the Godhead, always related to the Trinity, the three, the three deity. So, then we keep moving along here. How is Christ... Central to the church. So what does the scripture say? And I you know, marked Romans 16:16 there for you. Christ is always preeminent when discussing the church. Um, always. So these are just some various things that, that, various ways that scripture describes the church through Jesus. Um, he's called the whole body. Or when he, sometimes scripture just dis- distinguishes from the body, Christ is called the head. Um, in the family of God, Christ is described as, as the son over the household. So he's the elder brother. Christ is described as the husband of the church. And then here what's, here's what's really interesting is that Christ is often described as dual places in the same metaphor. So Christ is both the vine and the rightful heir and representative of the owner. He's both. I mean, And that just speaks to his supremacy, his preeminence. Christ is both the shepherd and the gate into the sheepfold. Um, and then, of course, uh, a great phrase. He's the cornerstone of the new spiritual temple. And so, um, let me make sure. I have a student, a class version and a teacher version. So, I want to say this word for word. If the church is the people of God, it is the people of God in Christ. If the church is the community of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the gift of of the resurrected Christ. So again, the preeminence of Christ in the church. Third question, of course, today as we track this idea. What and who are the people of God? The description people of God defines two things. The character of the people and who their God (coughs) is. So that phrase isn't just... Whose we are, but it's also supposed to describe um, the, the nature of us as a group. Um, so the way uh, Dr. Ferguson says that is the phrase people of God provided both the background for the concept of the church and served to describe a particular aspect of it. That phrase people of God originates in the Old Testament as God creates his, uh, the, the Israelite nation. So these three questions are helping us arrive at our conclusion um, and they're really important to set the groundwork before we get into our main passage today that's going to be in first peter two so if you want to turn there um, it's written on the page but if you'd like to look at your translation or want to turn um, we'll do that the phrase people of going will be super important Peter, um, the author, of course, Peter, he's going to claim that title, people of God, which is originated um, as God um, interacted with Abraham and the Israelites uh, later on. He's going to claim that title for Christians. Here's the passage. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So the idea of people, if you want to turn the page, permeates the passage. I put people in quotation marks, um, because it's, this concept is super important to the rest of our lesson, the way that word is used, okay? And so um, it's really helpful. Dr. Ferguson differentiates between how we typically use the word people and how the Bible speaks of it, okay? So in English, you, you work through your mind with this. The word people is used for an aggregate of individuals, right? Like we're all people here gathered together today. You might be, you know, out at a party or something, some gathering. And say, how many people are here? You might be in a stadium, you know, watching a game. How many people are here? Twenty-five thousand. Okay. Um, you might be walking down the street, see some guy in a feather boa, and say, who are those crazy people? You know, nothing gets feather boas, by the way. Um, <laughs> if that's your thing. Um, the point being, that's how we use people to talk about individuals, groups, together. But this distinction is key. Um, I'm trying my best to explain it in the Bible people typically means a a corporate whole, one single corporate whole. So it's a nation or a race viewed as a collective identity or entity. So in that case, you can truly speak of one people. Now, we use that word, we use the word people in that way all the time um, when we say something like the American people or the German people. So it's this, is, this concept is crucial to understanding why predestination, the idea that God chose some people uh, ahead of time to be saved, why it's, it's, a, it's a misunderstanding of Scripture, why it's, why it's an error, why it's false teaching. Um, because, we're gonna, as we already said, God, God elects a people, not individuals. Okay? So that distinction is going to be super clear. And we've got it in First Peter 2, 9 and 10, Christians are a people. I All right, David. I have a quick question. Fire away. Would you say that was defined differently, Old Testament to New no, Testament? No, I think it's the exact same de- de- definition. Okay. So that's a great right. kingdom, people, in the Old Testament. Uh, we we read that they are
1: the, uh, the kingdom of God, the, the nation chosen by God. <coughs> right. In the Old Testament, God did not choose individual Jews, he chose the Jewish nation, and in in the New Testament, instead of choosing individual
0: people, he chooses the church, those in Christ. Yeah. Right? Absolutely, that point is crucial here, like, that is the basis for this argument that we're making, Um, that God, it's clear he chose people in the Old Testament um, as a group, and now he's doing the same in the New Testament. and there's actually not much difference how he does that. We're going to see. I'm going to try to, to walk you through that, that discussion here. So as we move forward, then, we have some questions about this people God has chosen. Okay. And the first is, who, ele- who does the electing? We've got to establish that, right? Um, and it's really simple. It's a nice Sunday school answer. By that, I mean, you know how in Sunday school, the answer to every question is always God or Jesus, right? My daughter can tell you that. So um, it's true in this case. Who elects the people? God elects, okay? Um, And this has some really important implications for our own identity, like how we feel about ourselves, both as a group and individually. And so the most important thing said about this people, this new people in 1 Peter 2.10, is that it is God's. And the key there is that the emphasis falls on God's work, His activity, his choosing, his possession. He is the one who made it a people.. Um, a All right. Um, there's this really great phrase you may want to write down um, that I encountered in, in my preparation by a uh, scholar Paul D. Hansen. He says that, that um, God's people are the divine possession. And that really stuck with me. We are the divine possession. Um, and then I want to dig into the scripture just a little bit, verse 10. This is quoting Hosea 2.23. Okay? And uh, Peter's going to use the parallelism, that means the, the mirrored structure of Hebrew poetry. And he's going to, what he does there in verse 10 is he's going to make the idea of being made a people. Equivocal to receiving God's mercy. So if you read verse 10 again, if I could. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. That sentence, uh, sorry, clause one. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That structure indicates those are parallel or mirrored ideas. They are expressing the same thing. So I'll say it again being made a people, is to receive mercy. And so, this is, um, hearing it this way was really important for me. God saved you as a person, right? Like, when Amanda Ziegler got baptized, Jesus' blood saved her. Right? Like individually, that happened. But God's plan from the beginning was not just to save Amanda. It was to create a community. That is essential to what He did. Okay? And so, Um, that's really, really important. God's saving grace, His mercy, isn't just to save individuals, but it's to create a community. And so I ask you this question, for the first time, I turn it over to y'all a little bit. How might the answer to this question, um, who elects the people, how might that matter to those outside the church, um, do you think? In what way? By the way, I'm not looking for a single answer. If I were, I would tell you, I'm interested in your thoughts. Um, Who elects the people, how might the answer to that question matter to those outside of the church? provides them a sense of belonging. So if you feel like you're lost, disconnected, you know, things aren't going right, and you see this community of people, you know, maybe it, it brings in that sense of belonging to them, something that they want. Amen, Chris. Chris said it creates a sense of belonging for them. If they're feeling outside, lonely, isolated the answer to that question creates a sense of belonging it says here's a place that I can be part of
1: but if you think of the terms of election it is a choice once you made that choice you you made an election god recognizes that if you will and so uh, he takes the elect because you've made that choice to become God's
0: people, if you will, in that sense. Ron, that's a powerful statement about how we're affirmed in our choice. The literal creator of the universe is affirming that choice. Thank you.
1: Well, you may be speaking to someone who has been failed by humans a lot. And so knowing that it's not a human electing these people or in charge of any of it, and it's someone, something way more powerful than that, takes that kind of, you know... It, it just makes it feel better for them if they've been failed by by people thank you madam will say you know, one of the best examples i could think of this i, I was thinking about some old testament examples we brought that up earlier and of course you know the huge parallel there but so you think about rachel first of all who she denied her own people and chose to to believe in the story she had heard about yahweh bringing the, the Israelites across, and she chose to follow them, but, but also think about Ruth, and she was outside of that chosen people, she was a Moabite woman, and she was outside of God's chosen people, but when she married Naomi's son, and then her husband died, and Naomi was going back, and she made that statement, I will go where you go, I'll live where you live, your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. The the Jewish people had the whole proselyte process, where someone who wasn't a Jew could still join the nation and become a benefit, a a benefactor of the the, the blessings of God and the mercies of God, and not be outside His his mercy, suffering His wrath. And that's kind of where the people are today when they choose that our God, the God of the kingdom, the church, Christ. Will be theirs. Then they step into that and become part of that chosen life.
0: And so, I think that story of Ruth is a good parallel. Thank you, thank you for making that connection for us, Tracy. I'll sum up this point before we move to the next question. We can find our identity as persons only in community, and we know that because God created the church like that was His design. Any other teaching is is. Ignorant of human nature, we can, to use a secular term, we cannot be self-actualized by ourselves. We, we can only become fully who God created us to be in community. And of course that community is, is the church. Working with young people, and, and y'all, y'all raising kids and grandkids and, and nephews and, and so forth, and, and even people in this room, there's a lot of questions today about where does your identity come from? Who are you? Young people, Generation Z, Generation Alpha, they're always asking themselves that question. And they've got a lot of sources telling them where it can come from. But as part of God's people, our identity comes from being His. In Acts All right. 242, it says 3,000 souls were added to
1: them on that day. Uh, they are a group. We are
0: a group. Uh, baptized believers are added to us as a group, as a people, as a corporate entity. Thank you, Wes. That's a good transition to the next question. Who does God elect? God elects a community. Um, he chooses, and, and this is the pattern, this is going to be the answer to David's question about the Old Testament. Where do we see this? So, um, God chooses, an indi- he has this pattern of choosing an individual that then leads to choosing a people. Now here's what I mean, the, the biblical doctrine of election Every, um, in the, just so you know, the, the words election and chosen are interchangeable. It's the same uh, Greek root, or Greek word. Most of the references in the Bible to God's election, hearing that phrase, have to do with the choice of a group, corporate election. So the first, we're going to see the pattern here. The first would be Abraham. God chose Abraham, he spoke to him directly, no one else. But who was chosen through Abraham? His descendants. That's absolutely clear, right? Okay. How about Jacob? Or, or of course his name changed to Israel. God chose him to be the father of the nation, literally, but he, he chose all in him, all the descendants of Jacob are um, part of that group. The promises made to Abraham go through Isaac to Jacob. Okay? And God, and, and you can even go to the scripture, Deuteronomy 7 6 does that. Okay? There's another example with Levi. God chooses Levi to have a special role, but then that promise is made to Levi and his whole family, right? All the descendants of Levi were to be the priests of the, uh, of the kingdom. And then in David, God chooses David, but that promise holds true for David's descendants, right? All the way up to Jesus in, in Matthew one. So... We're not spending a lot of time here because I think the point and the pattern is clear. I put it in bold. In all four cases, the choice by God of an individual was the choice by God of a group, the descendants of the person chosen. Right? And, to a point made earlier, in all four of those cases, people can make the choice to live outside of that. David's descendants... Were all of them faithful to the covenant? No, absolutely not. Jeroboam 1 rejects God outright. Okay? Um, The Israelites, there were many individual Israelites that did not live faithful to the covenant. That did not elect, as Ron said, to be part of that group. Right? So, again, this is a super important point. I think the pattern is clear. The individual leads to the community. And so... The transition to Christ to me is clear. How does God now elect? That's how he did it in the Old Covenant, how do you do it in the New Covenant, this new kingdom. God now elects in Christ. Over and over again, the scriptural principle is the elect people are those in Christ. Hence the importance of being in Christ. And this is really important. Christians receive our election from Christ's election. Who, who now is the single individual through whom the elect people Become chosen, it is Christ. In the same way that Abraham's descendants were part of the elect, in the same way that uh, Jacob's descendants were part of the elect, in the same way that David's descendants are part of the elect. Now Christ's descendants are part of are, are the elect. So I wrote it this way. There's a clear pattern. God chose Abraham and all in him, and so forth. Okay, the election of Christ entails the election of those in him, and so what's fascinating is if you if you look at these this set of scriptures here these words that are foreknown predestined love before the foundation of the world those phrases which I'll be honest with me as I think about talking with people who believe in predestination those are the phrases that give us the most trouble right like it literally says predestined David like you're you're the one playing with words here well this pattern to me is really revelatory that same word or language is used to speak about Christ and about his people so the plan for Christ to be the, um, the founder of the elect, the, 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 the supreme of the elect, that's what's predestined. Not the individuals in it, but that the people would exist. Okay, So um, Christians are in Christ as Jews are in Abraham and humanity is in Adam. Okay, God chose a category. So here's the bolded statement at the end of that box. The emphasis is that Christ's election occurred in Christ. Those who are in Christ through hearing the word of truth, believing in Christ, and being sealed with the Holy Spirit are those who are holy and blameless. Now, how does the New the New Testament establish that? Like, where are the passages we can think about and reflect on? Again, not proof texts. Don't try to slap this down like a domino, okay? It doesn't work that way. But the, what are the passages that are going to really um, establish that election is in Christ? Well, here they are. Let's, let's read those. I think it's important. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 and 5. For we know, brothers and sisters, beloved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our message of the gospel came to you not in word only, but also in power in the Holy Spirit and with full elect conviction. This is the key phrase. He has chosen you because our message of the gospel came to you. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13, 14. It's on the page as well. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. God chose you through sanctification and what? Belief in the truth. He called you through what? The gospel. Okay. Those Thessalonians passages from Paul. In the first passage, the gospel is connected with um, with election. And in the second passage, faith, belief, is connected to election. Both of those center in Christ. And then here's this wonderful passage from Ephesians 1 that really puts it all together. I want you to pay attention to choosing election and how it's always related to being in Christ. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He destined us for adoption as His children through Jesus Christ. In Christ we have also obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will. In him you also, when you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. And this shouldn't, the last sentence shouldn't be italicized, I apologize. The whole chapter is anchored in the historical events of Christ's death and resurrection. And so I'm going to repeat it again. The emphasis... It, the emphasis is that um, Christ's election occurred, excuse me, that should say Christian's election occurred in Christ. Those who are in Christ through hearing the word of truth, believing in Christ, and being sealed with the Holy Spirit are those who are holy and blameless. I'll state it much more plainly. How do you get in Christ? You obey the gospel. That's how you become in Christ. And so um, that's the crucial point here. The analogy would be David... Just like you became one of Abraham by uh, natural birth, right? You get into Christianity by spiritual birth. That's Galatians 3, if, you, if you'd like to look at that. All right? So we return then to the conclusion. It's not said in Scripture that, has, that God has chosen Christians individually. He has chosen those in Christ. He has not chosen who will be in Christ. Who makes that choice? Your neighbor. You. God elects a community. And the community he chooses now are those in Christ. A person may reject Christ and refuse the election. So, simple pattern. In the Old Testament, God chooses an individual, and then the people are elect through that. In the New Testament, that happens through Christ. The way you can become in Christ is through the gospel. Um, And then there's this quote I thought I would let someone else's eloquent words finish. um, Why this is important why this is significant for the lives we lead, uh, not just so you can, again, as I said, win a debate. And John Howard Yoder from his article, The People in the World. I'd like, if y'all want to follow along with me, we can. The political novelty which God brings into the world is a community of those who serve instead of ruling, who suffer instead of inflicting suffering, whose fellowship crosses social lines instead of reinforcing it. This new Christian community in which the walls are broken down, not by human idealism or democratic legalism, but by the work of Christ, and not only a vehicle of the gospel or fruit of the gospel, It is good news. It is not merely the agent of mission or the constituency of a mission agency. This is the mission, to create a community in Christ. That is good news.